Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Through the Frame. I'm your host, Jesse Carosi, and this podcast has been brought to you by the HPA. For those that are not familiar with the HPA, please check us out online at hpaonline.com. The HPA Net Committee has a lot of great virtual content coming out, and the HPA Tech Retreat is actually coming out very soon, too, so be sure to check that out on our site. And for anyone tuning in for the first time to this podcast that are also not familiar with who the HPA is, they're a nonprofit member association that connects businesses and individuals. And if you want a more in-depth verbal breakdown of who they are or who I am for that matter, check out episode one of this podcast series. So we're here today to talk about the television show WandaVision and what went into DITing this show, as well as an intro for anyone new to what a DIT is. We'll also cover things like using the latest live grade studio, managing looks, main unit versus second unit, utilizing a 4K on-site signal flow, HDR on set, and more. So I assume everyone knows what WandaVision is. I got to imagine pretty much everyone listening has probably seen it or at least knows what it is. But just in case you haven't, it's a Marvel TV show focusing on Marvel's characters Wanda and of course Vision and the show's been made to look like varying classic sitcoms which is kind of interesting so that'll be great when we get into the look management side of this but I think I'll leave it at that just to avoid spoiling anything for anyone that hasn't seen the show so here with us today to get into some of the behind the scenes on this job is Dane Brem who is the second unit DIT on this job welcome to the show Dane thanks for having me Jesse look forward to being a part awesome thank you So a quick little background on Dane for our listeners out there. Dane is again a DIT, having worked on a ton of awesome projects from King Richard's second unit, three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri, Ripple Effect, which there is an episode focused on just Ripple Effect in this podcast series if you haven't heard it, the live-action aquatic unit on Avatar 3, and of course WandaVision's second unit, which we're here to talk about. And more, you can check them out on IMDb if you want to see more of that stacked resume. (laughs) (laughs) Let's get into it then. As I understand it, you were the second unit DIT and Kyle Spicer was on main unit, right? Yeah, that's correct. I handled the uh, second unit, which is like the stunt unit, visual effects unit for WandaVision. Kyle Spicer was the main unit DIT and kind of originated a lot of the workflow, but each unit is kind of treated independently of the other. And so a lot of us just kind of talk amongst ourselves and what we're doing and how we're doing it, but we're kind of left to do what makes the most sense for what we're trying to capture for the show. I see. Well, before we get into too much of the super technical stuff, I feel like we have a decent mix of people tuning into this show from a very from very technical people that work in film to people that are film buffs but don't necessarily work in our industry. And so for all of you, I'll keep this short for the others, but a a DIT is a digital imaging technician, if you don't know what that acronym is. I've always thought of this person as the on-set engineer for the camera department. The specific responsibilities may vary slightly job to job or region to region, but I've always looked at them as a DP's right hand for ensuring that the camera masters were recorded and exposed properly, backed up, even if that means you're managing another person doing that backup, along with being a creative on set, doing the color correcting for the live feed coming off the cameras and many more things depending on the job. Do you think I summed that up much or Absolutely. are you cringing because you're actually a DIT? <laughs> I, I, I think there's many, many different variations of, of what a DIT, but I, everything you just allocated there is, is perfect and describes most of what we're doing. As you said, it's different from DP to DP, but 
fantastic explanation. Gotcha. Okay, cool. Well, and we can talk about what it what it meant to be a DIT on this one. Ooh. So with that being said, I understand you were live grading. And I got to say, on any job I've ever been a part of, standard dynamic range has been the format. I've never actually seen anyone doing live grading unless it was for a couple days to get a feel for the look of the show so that the DP would have an understanding of, okay, now I know how to expose things. And, and maybe they came into the grading bay to see everything after the first day of shooting, but then they go back because they don't have that HDR monitor on set. They don't have that gear to be able to do an HDR process the whole way through. But this one was HDR, right? Yeah, it's uh, not not just HDR and not just delivered in Dolby Vision, but it's actually the first project to my knowledge and um, many others where we had a full end-to-end HDR pipeline. Just Hall, ASE, our BSE, our, our DP, really sat down with our camera, which is the Alexa LF, and wanted to look through all the various time periods that we had for the show. We had seven different time periods which ended up becoming 21 different LUTs just to be able to manage all of the different looks we were going for. We also had a lot of variation in our frame lines and our framing from 240 to 16 by 9 to 4 by 3 and for any of the different eras that we were in, starting with 50s era black and white, moving to like 70s to 90s, early 2000s, the 2010s, until we finally got to the MCU era, which was a really fantastic time. So as we started black and white standard definition, we started getting into modern standard definition until we end on the last few episodes in the MCU in full HDR, full dynamic range, (laughs) as much saturation and color as we can get to really kind of fill out the look that all of the Marvel fans were looking for. And really what Jess wanted to do was probably achieve one of the most creative looks. And he's going to set the standard for all Marvel episodic shows going forward. So it was really great to be a part and kind of help manage that system um, between Kyle and I. If I understood that correctly, the first few episodes were in SDR. So we were you monitoring in HDR at all at that point? Or were you monitoring in SDR knowing that when you are getting to an episode that will be delivered in HDR, that's when you start monitoring in HDR on set? That's correct. We monitored in HDR limited to 100 nit. So that would be our black and white look because we're using all HDR monitors. Everything that we have on set is HDR. So Kyle has two Sony HX310s. I have the X300. I also had a a Flanders 250 as well. And we're looking at everything in our respective worlds. But Kyle, they had shot the first three episodes with a live audience actually in Atlanta. Really? I I just assumed that noise was added after all the... I know background sitcom style mm-hmm. applauding and oh laughing. yeah yeah they they went laugh, the good old laugh track <laughs> yeah it was it was as authentic they really they they really strived for that you know to be authentic as possible and the people the lighting the feeling the whole deal really was exciting and fun and you know allowed them to get the look we were going for so yeah even though we had hdr monitors and we were looking with the intent on the next episode moving towards full 600 nit hdr which is what we ended up with uh we started out looking at everything limited to 100 nit and then a progressive to add more saturation each look because 
we had an era for each one. So, you know, it was like mm-hmm. Dick Van Dyke and then it was Bewitched and then we had Malcolm in the Middle. You know, we had, you know, the MCU as well. And so we were able mm-hmm. to just kind of go wade between each one of these looks because, you know, you're shooting one episode one day and then a different episode the next day or in three episodes or, you know, three different scenes, um, especially the second unit with the amount of, you know, stunt and uh, the effects work that we have. It's almost like each episode you need a new framing chart as well, right? Oh, yeah. We, there <laughs> was, there was, you started 4-3, like you said, and then eventually you went yeah. to 16 by 9. And then what Correct. was the last one? It was 2.2 or 2.2. So we had uh, one point. We had the um, the famous Ultra Panatars, uh, which are made by Panavision. And they're these extremely rare set of lenses. There are only three sets of these lenses in the world. There's one Atlanta, one in Los Angeles, and one in Panavision, London. So when we, hmm. when main unit and second unit started up again um, this last fall, you know, middle of COVID, we only had one set. And we first tried to experiment by sharing the set. So we had a couple of our lenses and they had the main set of the lenses. And then they would go to shoot something and they would say, well, we need the 35. And we'd be like, okay, here, there's no problem. We'll send the 35. So we send the 35 and they go, no, 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 we need the 40 now. <laughs> not the 35. So they send the 35 back and we're all we're all at Disney Ranch. So we're pretty close to each other, but there's still a lot of logistics that go into all that whole thing. So it became kind of such a big deal logistically for both units that my VP, uh, Peter Lyons Collister, called Panavision London and begged and pleaded and used his own, you know, personal reputation to get those lenses sent from Panavision London to Los Angeles so that second unit could have its own set of lenses and we didn't have to share because there's so much work for both units to do. <laughs> there's only three packages of those lenses out there and yeah. you guys had two of them. That's amazing. <laughs> and they did not want to give those up. They were they told us no for weeks. And uh, I think Marvel just kind of ended up saying, hey, you know, we just need that. <laughs> we need this to make it work. And so they did it. And we're able to kind of huh. help us out and stuff. So, you know, we For had sure. a lot of lenses and uh, a lot of looks to manage. Well, on that note with the looks, so if you were monitoring and well, when you got to the point where you were monitoring in HDR, mm-hmm. I'm curious how that worked physically. And you have a lot of people on set that can't look at HDR. Mm-hmm. So were you using like a FS HDR box where you would split the signal and, and, and send two feeds out or... How, how was that being managed? And plus, I would be very curious because everyone in post, a lot of people in post are used to doing a trim pass and they do mm. a separate pass for either the SDR or the HDR, whatever they consider not to be the hero, right? Mm-hmm. So in this situation, are you spinning your knobs, creating your look for one of them and then the other one is a LUT conversion? Or I don't know, I just still don't understand how sure. you get both. Yeah, I'll talk a little bit about that. So. Both cameras on both units, we were pulling the, on the Alexa, you have out of the monitor two output, you have a 4K 10-bit 422 output. And then the other three outputs on the camera are 1080. So what we did was we pulled from one feed from the 4K, which was our HDR 4K feed. And then we pulled the second, which is the monitor three output, which is 1080. So we sent two signals directly to each DIT cart and then those went into our routers and then passed through our LUT boxes 
And for both Kyle and I, I had the IS Mini 4Ks, which were just running our 4K 12G pipeline, mm-hmm. only going to our X300 or X310 in, in Kyle's case. And then I had another, the 1080 feed, which was hitting my regular Fuji IS Minis or TV Logic IS Minis at this point. And then that allowed us to view in both HDR and SDR. But both my cinematographer and our gaffer and our lighting team had never been on an HDR show. So there was a lot of education. There was a lot of just kind of pointing them at HDR and saying, don't worry about SDR at all. Just focus on this light to that. And if you light to that, then we'll have the most ideal negative that we can capture and that will allow you know our colorists down the line to be able to get the best look but after Hmm. each day so in live grade kyle and i both linked our LUT boxes together so if i was moving the color on a camera i would be moving the 4k is mini but i'd also be moving the sdr version of that in the is mini so both of them were linked so a camera 4k a camera 1080 or hd would be linked to each other so that we could manipulate. And then on your cart, you have a monitor for each. So you are looking at both the HDR and SDR monitor while you're grading. Yeah. So I had three monitors on my cart to represent each camera. And, you know, half the time I would be, uh, I would feed A camera, B camera, C camera into the HDR. And then same thing for my B monitor, essentially. And then the C monitor would be whatever was, was happening, video assist or whatever we'd have to be looking at um, a reference, whatever it may be. Because in second unit, we actually do a lot of reference, a lot of sharing the different looks between the units to ultimately match what main unit did. So we're you know using Resolve, we're using Live Grade, we're using Stills, we're using Video, we're using anything we can get our hands on, editorial cuts, whatever it may be, to reference as close to how they shot everything. And so I was able to use LiveGrade Studio with Kyle and he would send me his PFLA, which is the Pomfort Look Archive. And I would take that ingested into my system and I would see all of his metadata and what he started from. And then I would use that to get as close to that look as we possibly could with lighting or action or CDL or whatever color you know manipulation that we had to, to match the look. And so when he was creating those looks, the DP was probably standing with him at the cart and it Mm -hmm. wasn't something where they worked with posts to make it with the final colorist. It was with Kyle right there on set. Yeah, that's correct. I mean, all of the LUTs were generated by Technicolor to build into their pipeline. And we are actually a a C, we we did not use ACES. We actually were a CDL based pipeline and then they would just swap in. Marvel has this amazing CDL management system that they use to be able to manage all of those LUTs and all of those CDLs to be shared across all the different vendors and different people. So that's pretty critical. Huge. Yeah, especially when you're talking, you said earlier 21 LUTs and that that triggered a light bulb in my head right away <laughs> because some post facilities have the ability to manage and track those. And when they turn over a VFX pool, they can automate turning over the appropriate LUT. But many companies don't have that. And knowing what LUT went with what shot is one thing, but I guess you would have had different LUTs for both the HDR and the SDR. So Mm -hmm. really when you say 21, that's actually multiplied by two, I guess, right? For each of those. Absolutely. And 
you're totally correct. I mean, there were there were times where everything essentially I'd have two, three cameras, but everything's doubled. And then I would have a CDL for each take, each, you know, going just building the library of looks throughout the whole entire day, capturing all the metadata, referencing everything. So there was times where I would generate, you know, something like 200 CDLs inside of a day <laughs> times two. So yeah. what Kyle and I did was we would output all of our HDR CDLs at once, and then we would use the Apple renamer, and we would rename all of our LUTs to be HDR or SDR. So when we delivered everything, you would know that it was SDR or HDR, and then what, what still it referenced at that point. But if that was for the CDL, because I understand that there'd be different LUTs because mm -hmm. one has to go into a different gamma because obviously one is HDR versus SDR and SDR being 709. But with the CDLs, so that means you were creating two different grades, one for SDR, one for HDR for the CDL specifically. Because I was thinking that you were creating one CDL and then the LUT did the conversion whether to, you know, 1,000 nits or 100. Mm -hmm. But... You were actually, you you dial in a look, save that for HDR, dial in a, make a slight tweak, I guess, mm -hmm. for the SDR and then save that? We would save them simultaneously. So every time I would hit create, it would create a look for each camera in the HDR and the SDR because they were linked. So there would be no independent tweaks. But wouldn't those values be the same? Yeah. Like between the two... Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, okay. Gotcha. They would be. Okay, so they were the same they values. So, but okay. one would be 100 nit, and the other one would be 600 nit. So, any CDL tweaks that we were doing would still, you know, be inside of CDL, but we would have, you know, respective LUT so that they could attach that CDL to that LUT. And you know, inside the latest LiveGrade Studio, we have we're a full video pipeline. Like we're in, in prior versions where C or, you know, we did mostly stills. We would just capture a still or a small clip or whatever. Mm -hmm. But in this pipeline, we were able to stay video the entire time. And so I'm actually capturing both the 1080 version and the HDR version reference material into my computer through my Decklink card in 4K and 1080 so that I always would have a reference of whatever we shot. So if I had to, if someone said, this is wrong, I can't, you know, it comes up wrong and the dailies colorists weren't able to fix it. I could say, here's some video of what we shot and what we were going for. So. Wow. That must be so helpful huge. compared to viewing stills. Oh my God. Massive. And I mean, just for reference, you know, it's, it's all about dynamic, right? Dynamic video, dynamic metadata, dynamic, you know, lighting, all of these things, if, if, you know, an actor looks to their left or to their right, that changes, you know, and what lens you're on. Of course, these are old lenses. I mean, a lot of the lenses we had are older lenses. Some were newish. We had some Primos for a little while. So it just depends on, on the glass, the era, framing, all of that together. Conditions. I mean, we shot a lot outside, especially on second unit with COVID. So we had giant, you know, green screen sets that we were on for a lot of it. So a lot went into the management side of all that. But we shared a lot of drop boxes. We shared a lot of things between each other, references for each day, whatever it may be. It was great. 
Were you also using Pomfort's new shot database where... Uh, shot Hub. Shot Hub. Were you using that? No, we didn't use Shot Hub. It was just a little okay. too early. Marvel has, you know, security standards um, that we have to follow for that kind of stuff. So yeah. well, anytime we share stuff between each other, we have to encrypt it and send it. So it was just easier to send, you know, encrypted thumb drives and share the data directly with each other than it was to upload it. Plus, we are in the middle of Disney Ranch and Warner Brothers Ranch. So we uh, didn't have great internet to begin with. I see. And so for the drives that would have went to the Dailies Lab, mm -hmm. if those had to be encrypted, I'm just curious how they mm -hmm. were encrypted. Was it just simply when you format the, as an example, you could just, when you format a hard drive, you can put a password on it. Was it that kind of a thing or was it like a key lock encryption? Both. We had both. So all of our onset raids, we have SSD raids. So Kyle on his unit, he had a couple uh, 90 terabyte SSD raids that he was using to back up all of our data. <laughs> And then I was using the 46 terabyte version of that same thing, which is it's their self-encrypted disks with hardware encryption, 256 AES keys and password protected through Mac HFS encrypt as well. Who makes that raid? It's made by Arika. Actually, I can show you a unit. Um, I have one in here. So what this is, what the, uh, this is a Arika unit. It's called the 8050. And it is a six bay, 2.5 inch SSD RAID. And it has both Anton Bauer 12 volt system as well as a 120. And then it's also Thunderbolt 3 and USB-C. But what makes this the most powerful system you can get is these enterprise self-encrypted disks, these SSDs that we're using. I'm using the smaller 7.68 versions, which are still pretty large. And Kyle, oh, it's all RAID 5. You know, all of our disks are RAID 5. And then Kyle's using the larger 15.3 terabyte version. So he gets, you know, 90, over 90 terabytes of RAID 5 storage, which is massive. That's amazing. Yeah. So it, it really makes things go by. That does slow down the speed of the RAID yeah. once you use the Mac, Mac yeah. encryption, right? But I guess if you're on a drive like that, it doesn't even matter. It actually owns up, only ends up being like somewhere around 10%. But since it's Thunderbolt hmm. 3, the Thunderbolt 3 is actually more of a limiting factor <laughs> than the encryption. So that's what we use for our onset system. I was also mm -hmm. using another system made by uh, Seagate called the uh, Live Drive Mobile Array, which is a mm -hmm. new system that uh, Seagate is going to be coming out with here soon, which is intended for the data center. And that was really just to have a on-site backup that we could do a little bit of extra testing on the system in a normal kind of scenario on a film. And that data never went anywhere. It just it just sat on our truck as like an ultimate backup just to test the system, which is a combination 12G SAS and Thunderbolt 3 system. So we use that for our onset raids. And then our shuttles are actually Kyle had his own shuttles. He, he has shuttles that are made by Samsung. Mm -hmm. And then I used um, my company's Centigrals shuttles, which are made by a AI kind of machine learning supercomputer company called Liquid, which makes the uh, fastest hard drives in the world. So I use the Liquid drives as my onset shuttles because they have software encryption, they're self-encrypted disks, and they also have what we call power loss 
protection, which is batteries built onto the actual disks themselves. Hmm. And what that allows us to do is guarantee that if there ever is a power loss during write on the disk, that it will not corrupt the disk or corrupt any of the data that's on the disk. That's amazing. So it's they're really yeah, they're really nifty and and probably the biggest drive that you can get that will get you home as fast as possible. Um especially after a day of shooting every raw and just having a ton of data. No doubt. You know, ninety six frames a second, that kind of stuff. You're just overloaded by the amount of data you're shooting. Wait, ninety six what do you mean by ninety six frames a second? For for stunt, for a second unit, we shot a lot of material at forty eight and ninety six frames per second. Oh for some of our for some of our scenes i see and when you say that i assume you mean off speed the base rate was still 2398 correct that's correct interesting when the dailies team had to process that do you know if they had to double process it i've seen a lot of times when off speed is shot Mm. for safety like that it has to be processed once in once in real time for editorial and then a second time in slow motion or was it all just processed in real time for some of those were really dedicated slow motion shots, but a lot of I the see. 48 frames material is exactly what you just said. Editorial would get it at uh, reprocessed and retimed at 2398 or 24, we are 224. And then visual effects would get it at the true 48 frame per second so that they'd have the extra frames. And when you say 48, do you mean like was the show 2398 or 24? Because one thing I... 24. Oh, well then 48 it is. Yeah. So anyone for anyone listening, anytime you're going to shoot at, you know, if you want to double the speed for slow motion and your your actual base rate is 2398, it's actually pretty surprising how many camera teams I have to talk to about this to say, don't shoot true 48 when you go off speed, go 47.982 because in post, when you look at the cadence between the two, having a multi, a factor of two is just so much better. It's cleaner should any uh, slight... Uh, conversions or if you need to reapply the speed effect during the online edit but yeah Hmm. if you were obviously in true 2448 makes sense and what's what's interesting is uh this is also the first show that visual effects and all the visual effects vendors were working in uh rec 2020 so they were doing all of their work in hdr as well Hmm. not just sdr and then converting or transforming later they were actually doing the work itself in HDR. I guess hence, hence your point earlier about like an entire HDR mm-hmm. pipeline. It wasn't just on set and in final grading. VFX yeah. was doing that it as well. A ton. It was it was fascinating. It was really mm-hmm. interesting to kind of see and put this together, and especially for Avid. I mean, that's probably the one thing that not many people not many people use the latest version of Avid. They're usually using five versions back because it's more stable. So this is really a time where they were able to use the latest version well, and, the, and the user interface yeah well that <laughs> a lot a lot there's still a lot of hardcore avid oh, fans that are not ready to make that no. plunge and, and uh, <laughs> it, ultimately they chose that just because uh they wanted editorial to be able to watch any of the previews in hdr for the director or for the studio and so they had to have the ability to um, look at something in hdr using the base light plugin app Oh, so it was the baselight plugin. Mm-hmm. And so what, how was that turned over to editorial? Was it DNX 36 or 115 considering? 115. Okay, yeah. Yeah, SDR 115. I see. And then what LUT would you be using then if you're turning over to them knowing that they're going to look at probably both an SDR and HDR monitor? I, I, or were I'm they? actually not quite sure how editorial did that. I am aware of what they did hmm. based off of... My wife is actually the first assistant editor for um, several of the Marvel movies and... 
ironically, this is she actually tested this entire pipeline before I even started WandaVision for with Marvel to test this HDR pipeline in Avid and work directly with Technicolor to figure out if they could even do it and what they needed to mm-hmm. train all of their camera assist or excuse me, all their uh, editorial assistants on how to be able to do this. But unfortunately, once once they started, I, I'm not really sure editorial was in Atlanta. So we weren't mm-hmm. able to stop by or see or see what they ultimately did. So maybe that's for another episode. We'll get one of those AEs on here and they can talk about it. <laughs> yeah. It's it's interesting. I, I just can't help but feel like it won't be long until a lot more jobs are doing what you did on set. You know, it's still far and few between that I've heard that those monitors are expensive. And so with that being said, you were not on an X300. You were on the new X310, right? I was on the X300, which I, oh, okay. I much prefer over the 310, not for its ability. That's why I bring it up. Yeah. Yeah. The reason why is the X300 is just a more stable platform for onset use. When you're on location in the middle of nowhere and, for example, uh, when we for our first week, we're in Los Angeles, so we had uh, a couple fires going on as well around us. I mean, it was literally like we couldn't see like 30 feet in front of us. There was so much smoke. Holy. Add on top of it was about 95 degrees to 105 degrees for those kind of two weeks. Fahrenheit that for the, all it, the Canadians tuning in. Fahrenheit. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, 40C for all of those <laughs> metric folks out there. But the HX310s ended up needing their own air conditioning units just to be able to stay stable, um, really? which is unfortunate. Yeah, because the, the because the HX310 is a dual panel, it just creates twice as much heat. Versus the X300, which, you know, is kind of a little bit more built for onset use. It's not as big. It doesn't weigh as much. You don't need to reinforce your cart. Kyle Spicer had to reinforce his cart just to be able to hold two of them, which normally people only have one. (laughs) So he had two of them. So and a Sony A250 above that. So he was riding over 140 pounds of monitor on his top shelf yikes so that that's that's a feat in its own right (laughs) but me i just much preferred the x300s i just think that for what we are doing on second unit we are getting the same quality the same look the same feel and none of the issues with overheating or or stability um we wanted to be able to just go whenever we didn't have the luxury unfortunately especially with air conditioning units you know they only want to give you so many on set yeah well it was it was weird to me to hear that you know there was an award just recently given for the x300 and then but yet it's discontinued and now you know even and and from some of the people that i've heard that are trying out the x310 they're they're also saying just on certain angles yeah. And the power up time or the time it takes to switch from SDR to HDR in the monitor, because for some colorists, they might need to switch yeah. on the same monitor back and forth. But for it to rest and land where it needs to land color wise, it just takes a long yeah. time. And there's a lot of people pushing back on it, at least um, in you know the post world that I've heard because of that. I can see that. I've experienced that on the ripple effect. I had that in and also on Avatar. We had an HX310. But on Avatar, we actually used the internal processing. So we'd send S-Log3 and then just turn on the transform inside the monitor to get to 2048 and just left it there. But uh, hmm. the HX310, yeah, is it's 
it's a very purposeful monitor um, meant to do kind of one or two things. But 12G is a big deal for us. With the X, with the X300, there's no 12G in. It's a split of four 3Gs. So even if my whole entire cart was internally 12G, when I spat a signal to the X300, I'd have to convert it to quad 3G to get into the monitor yeah. in order to view it. So that was one thing that they had to do that was, was, you know, kind of frustrating. And also locking and stuff like that. It takes a second to lock sometimes. You have to kind of undo, redo to get it to lock. And uh, then you have all four images, which is one big image, of course, at that point. I see. So, so there definitely yeah. are some advantages to going to the 310 then. There is. I mean, I definitely think, you know, for starting and finishing, I mean, that's a monitor you can start and finish on. I mean, you could shoot the whole production on the HX310 and then give it to post and they could grade the whole show. Obviously not with, as you were saying, with the, some of the colorists who need to kind of go back and forth, but... If you have that available to you, I think it's a fantastic tool. And really, those two kind of represent the only usable monitors for us on set. I mean, there really isn't many others. There's a 17-inch that we can use. Flanders has some, which are great, but they're just huge. They're absolutely massive, and mm-hmm. I think that's the biggest problem, especially on second unit. Like, we got a lot going on. Yeah, I need something that's going to be reliable. For sure. And fast and easy. And so considering that heat... Was there anything else that you had to take into consideration or were there any other anomalies that came up just due to your cart being in that kind of heat? Yeah, I mean, we ended up having to get several air conditioning units just to be able to keep us cool inside on top of being masked up. But what happens is those monitors produce a lot of heat. You put them inside of a tent with very little airflow. You got to keep them cool. So Mm -hmm. what we ended up doing half the time was we'd have an air conditioner for the humans and an air conditioner for the cart. <laughs> and a lot of the times it was it was just being pumped right into the X300 or the, the X310s just because we, there wasn't many. We couldn't just replace it. If those went down, like we were kind of SOL for yeah. the most part. So we didn't want those to go down. But all the other devices, you know, they had active cooling and fans and stuff that are pushing air through that. But it's just a, it's kind of a problem when you have super smoky fire laden air with heat, with masks and shooting a, an episodic film and having to go through all of that is just absolutely a really tough time for anybody trying to film. Yeah. And were you doing your own downloads or was there a loader or DUT or someone that also did that? I had actually a team of four people. I had a camera utility who just managed all of our cable and our wireless pipelines. His name is Michael Benchenko and you call him Chanky. His job was to be at the cameras talking to me about changing all of our frame because we had to change frame lines for each era. We had to change uh, different lenses for each era. And then we also had we had our 4K and our 1080 lines, which I used 200 and 300 foot BNC looms that we made at Panavision for connecting to the camera. So I would talk to Michael just about that and that he would get the feed into me. And then I had a, a loader, Johanna Salo, who's just mad genius. And she handled our entire data for our second unit and, you know, did it graciously. She also designed our shirts and did so much. And then we had a digital utility who kind of just helped with some of the paperwork, helped with food. 
So one of the things about Marvel shows, this is kind of an interesting, you may have seen this, but on typical shows, especially a union show, we'll have lunch six hours in, right? You start your day mm-hmm. at call time at, at what time, and then you have lunch you know, six hours later, you start at seven, it's at one, that kind of thing. But Marvel, the way they like to work is kind of like French hours. So that's like an 11 hour day, 11 and a half hour day. So when you get food, there's no lunch, you just keep shooting. So our Disney Utility, their sole job was to help us on any COVID-related things, but also get us food while we were still shooting so that we could eat throughout the day. Like in between setups, you'll be cramming food in? (laughs) Well, we'd have this like time, like right around one o'clock, two o'clock, like we'd get food and everyone had food and we'd be like in between a setup and we'd still kind of eat, you know, walking lunch kind of thing. Some people would go off and eat, others there, I mean... Uh, you know, we didn't really sit down and have like a half hour, 45 or an hour. And that just allows us to get out of there earlier instead of making it a 12 and a half hour day. It just makes our day hmm. an 11 hour or 12 hour day because we gain that time back that we lose. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. And that 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 played out. That wasn't the intention. And then all of a sudden you still work 12 hour days every day. Yeah, it still happened that way anyway. A com- <laughs> <a> combo. <laughs> it was called okay. French hours, but it's a yeah, it's never it never worked like that. And the production and Disney and Marvel, you know, really wanted to protect us as best they could. Yeah. But at the end of the day, you know, we're fighting a deadline. I see. And with the second unit that was on this job, was that a full time thing or was that mm-hmm. okay? Interesting. So they started filming in Atlanta in 2019 in the fall. And they had like a week of second unit or something, which was some drone stuff and some action with the intention of everything coming from Atlanta and going to Los Angeles and Burbank and finishing up. So both main unit and second unit, we were a total of 10 weeks um, once we got to L.A. And that's because we pretty much started from episode three on and completed the remainder of the show. I see. So I didn't do the first couple episodes, which are predominantly black and white, even though I did some work on them. Yeah. We, most of our stuff was from episode you know, four on. I see. It was really fun. I mean, I'm super honored to, to be a part of it. And I mean, you know, Jess Hall really, really does deserve all the credit. He really did create a really amazing show that this pipeline that, that him and Kyle have done will be the pipeline for the future. It's literally how we're going to do all of the Marvel shows going forward, at least the episodic ones. So it's it's nice to be a part of the ground laying for that whole pipeline and allow us and also just taught me a lot too of you know what to expect. Like here's a fun fact. When you're looking at Rec 2020 coming out of the camera, it doesn't look like log C the way we normally see it in SDR. It looks like there's a lot applied or 709. And so, you know, when you first look at it, you go, is this how LUT on it? Is this the way it is? And it's because we're so used to log C SDR looking flat and gray and like, yeah. you know, no contrast or anything. But when you look at it, just log C rec 2020, it looks like 709. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of those times where people like look at it and they'd be like, what is that? What, what is that our look? Is that, our, I mean, no, 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 <laughs> that's log C. Like, no, we're just booting up still. Like, oh, the LUTs will, you know, the LUT boxes will kick on in just a second. And they're like, oh, but it looks what could look and I was like well when you add all that extra color space yeah you're like suddenly, wait till you, know, you see the look yeah exactly. <laughs> wait till I so, put my magic on it it, it was just fun I mean mm. there's so many things like like street lamps for example you know street lamps looking at how you light a street lamp 
and you're looking at this whole scene at night and it's dark and like you're seeing this whole thing happen literally looking and staring at the street lamps which are 600 nit because you know they're white so they're they're almost distracting Mm -hmm. so you're having to knock them down as much as possible just to kind of fill it in the ratios so because you have all that extra you know low end as well as the high end in hdr so we really did enjoy you know kind of playing with that and literally tune it was tuning our dp and our gaffer to get used to that get used to what they're seeing used to what works for them for sure now you've mentioned 600 nits a few times normally i'm used to any hdr job having a peak luminance of a thousand nits just curious what brought on the decision to go to 600. Jess Hall, our DP, sat with Kyle during the initial preparation for the show just to explore how the various knit levels would translate to his lighting and his lens choices, both for exterior day, but as well as, you know, exterior night or even interior night for that matter. So what they did was they looked at a thousand knit, 800 knit, 600 knit and 400 knit and just kind of look through what each one of those transforms really did for the language that they were trying to share on WandaVision. And ultimately, they chose 600 nit. And it's because 600 nit, when you are filming, let's just say a night exterior, for example, you're not fighting yourself nearly as hard with practicals or for any highlights that you might have it's much easier to kind of take those down and make them look a little bit more normal than having a white bulb or a white street lamp at a thousand nit beaming you in the eye because with some of this technology that we're using for example led lighting if you dim it too low you start to get a little bit of like a a flicker kind of a refresh pulsing that doesn't look so good. So ultimately 600 nit is the decision we made and ended up going with it. Gotcha. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. So to go back to your example of the street lamp, just curious if there was an urge from the DP to start doing secondary grading when maybe in SDR that may not have really been a thing due to the lamp not popping quite so much in SDR. Or was this just flagged as a, we'll deal with it in final grading kind of thing? I think the difference really between the human side and the craft of like the cinematographer and the gaffer and the key grip, all three of them having a conversation with the DIT of what this shot should look like Mm -hmm. is a very organic process. It's something that's changing and evolving. I don't think I, out of any of my cinema, anybody on set ever said, oh, we'll just take that down later. They don't work like that. Their approach is get as much in camera as possible. If this is lit right now and it's too much, then it's too much. We'll do everything in our power, especially our gaffer or our key grip. So they worked pretty hard to try and get us into a nice HDR 600 nit world that looked cinematic and you know had that feel and look the way we wanted to tell the story. We had a mm-hmm. lot of elements as well too. So it's kind of nice to play with those and deliver what we hope. And so when we got dailies, which are SDR dailies, they would look as close to what it would be so that when Jess got into the DI, he said, oh, hey, we need to tweak these. Like the, the street lamps are too bright. He could make that decision when he's there and he has the mm-hmm. chance to look at everything when it's all cut together. Because I think that's the difference between having a good colorist is when you see everything shot to shot, back to back. 
whereas in second unit we're like looking at one half of the stunt you know we're doing the throw and then landing and then you look up and it's you know elizabeth olsen or or it's you know paul bentney like you know he it's part of cinema it's part of filmmaking for a second unit to do that and so we wanted to as much as possible reflect what jess was doing and even a few times we got a chance to actually set the look for a given scene too and have main unit follow us which was always a little fun to kind of rib them a little bit and be like (laughs) oh we shot that for you guys here you go which is very much not the case on majority of the of the time but on a show like that like you just share stuff you share what you can you know you'll shoot the talent as well as the stunts and the visual effects whatever it be well, that's really exciting. Well, congrats. This show turned out amazing. And Thank you. like you said, there were so many people that tuned in. It's pretty awesome. I'm excited as both a technician and a crew member also to be a fan of the show that you work on. It's very rare that I'm like a super big fan as well as being, you know, a crew member. And on one of the last episodes I did of this podcast with the team from Queen's Gambit, they really talked about how much everyone cared and that the passion really showed through in the product. And, um, like you were saying, if everyone is already a fan of the Marvel series, that probably made a massive difference that people people cared. Yeah. It wasn't just a job. And I think that's what we all strive for, especially in the larger projects. We're such a part of the machine and such a part of getting this whole giant multi-hundred million dollar project delivered in on time. And it takes a city of people just to deliver. I mean, Marvel, <laughs> just look at the credits. They literally try to get credit for everyone it's not like the other studios are like they cut that list in half so it looks like they used less people no marvel 13 (laughs) minutes of just credits so you know applaud to them just to try and get everyone credit who's a part of the project it really does make you know the crew members that much happier and uh, glad to be a part of it for sure well thank you of course all right well thank you very much for joining us today dane uh it's been a pleasure thank you for having me no problem you know, many people tune in to learn about varying jobs within our industry and or people looking to learn about a certain position they want to aspire to. So your knowledge is very much appreciated. And to everyone else, thank you very much for tuning in. Your support is also very much appreciated. And stay tuned for the reveal of who our next guest will be on social media. And until next time, that's a wrap.